This is CNN. Radio. What would Elie Wiesel, who is now 84, say to the 16-year-old Elie Wiesel, the boy who had just survived the concentration camps of Auschwitz and Buchenwald? We will find out shortly here on CNN Profiles. I'm your host, Michael Schulder, and Professor Wiesel, despite his recent quintuple heart bypass surgery, appears to be a vigorous 84. Of course, we're speaking to you now, Elie Wiesel, because it's the 20th anniversary of the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum. You were the, the founder of it, the first chairman. And just last month, we learned that researchers from the memorial had been combing through documents that had existed for years, but nobody had read through them carefully enough to take account and map out the number of ghettos and concentration camps and tell us what they found because it was shocking. Was it shocking to you? Absolutely. At the same time, I was not really that, I was shocked but not surprised. Tell us the news. Hoyas oh, had discovered some 45,000 uh, ghettos or we didn't even know about. 45,000 ghettos and concentration camps, some of which were extremely small, scattered. All throughout the All land, Europe, yeah. which has implications for how we assess who knew what and who was complicit, doesn't it? We knew, we knew that we know that. Now, in doing research, we know that the world knew. For me, one of the darkest moments in my life was when I came to America, I went to the New York Times Library and to the New York Public Library, saying, what did America know? Incredible, what America knew. America in August 1942, they already knew with certainty that millions of Jews were condemned to death by the Germans and so forth, and nothing was done. The New York Times itself, was, I think, hit the news inside page, something, a small, small item. Uh, I have a friend, Arthur Gelb, used to be managing editor of the Times, and he then invited me to a luncheon with the New York Times editors of those who were there then and those who are now. And he said to me, look, speak, because we know that you are very angry at all. I was. I, 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 look, I used to be a journalist. I believe in, in communication. I believe in the press. And when I found out that the most respected journal in the world hasn't done enough, or has done very little, how can I open a newspaper every morning and say, wait a second, what did they say then? So they decided afterwards that they will do something about it. And therefore they actually have now a plaque in the New York Times offices saying when it comes to the tragedy of the Jewish people in Europe, the Times has not fulfilled its mission. I didn't know that. In terms of what we know now, I mean, your personal journey, there are so many millions of individual stories of people who survived and who didn't. And there are some common points and some that are very unique. But rereading Night, last night, your memoir of your experience in the Holocaust, I didn't, ha I didn't realize that you were in a selection process in one of the camps that was supervised by Mengele. Dr. Joseph Mengele. Please tell our listeners what that was like. My friend, remember, at that time, we Hungarian Jews were criminally neglected by the free world. May 1944, 
literally days before D-Day, when Washington knew, London knew, Switzerland knew, the Vatican knew what Auschwitz meant, we Jews in Hungary didn't hear about it. Had we heard about it, my town in Transylvania, which is in the Carpathian Mountains, is surrounded by mountains. We could have escaped into the mountains and, and, and hide. We had a Christian woman, illiterate, Maria. She was our, our, our friend and servant for years and years. She came into the ghetto and she pleaded with my father, Mr. Wiesel, she says, I have a hut in the mountain. Come, I'll take care of you. The Russians were 30 miles away. If we had known, how come that nobody told us? Who was 30 miles away? The Russian army, the Red Army. How come? If occasionally I'm seized by anger, that is my anger about that. So what did we know? Nothing. So therefore, when we arrived there, my father we arrived in Auschwitz. He looked through the window. He said, scale Auschwitz. The name meant nothing to us. We were there, and we had no idea. And this doctor? Then we came to there, and we stood in line. This was, this was later now, that right? That night. Oh, that was that first that arrival. That very night. That very night. Of course, this immediately separated us from my, my mother and, and my sisters, and I remained with my father, and everything was so fast and so well organized. Everybody knew what to do in order to lure the victims. Everyone. Everything worked. The machinery worked. And then all of a sudden we came, and then a, an, an old prisoner came to the, to the line saying, they were asked you questions. To me, he said, how old are you? I said, 15. Say 18. To my father, how old are you? He said, 48 or something. No, say 30. Because he knew what we didn't know, that those who could work will live. Those who couldn't will die. And as he was staying, and then something strange happened to me. I come from a very religious background, very religious. All my life was that, religion. I studied only religious texts. I had to go to school because that was the law, but the main thing. And all of a sudden, when I saw these hundreds and hundreds and thousands perhaps of Jews coming from all over Europe, speaking all languages, belonging to all cultures, to all conditions. Men, women, children, young and old, learned and ignorant, all are there. I had the feeling this is a messianic event, the ingathering of the, the fine, ultimate ingathering of exiles. The Messiah is coming. I swear to you, that's what I felt. And who came was not the Messiah, but death as Messiah. You mentioned if we had known back in, how do you pronounce your town, Siget? Siget. Yeah. Siget. One man knew, and I read it One, in your book, yes. his name Moshe, was... Moshe, Moshe, yeah. One man knew. Moshe the Beetle? Be the Beetle, yeah. Beetle. Yeah. Why do they call him Mo Moshe He was a beetle in the synagogue. What's a beetle? The beetle is the, the ultimate servant of the synagogue, the lowest servant of the synagogue. He was one of the poorest men in town. Poorest and insignificant, and he was taken by a first transport. In 1941 or so, the, the Hungarians trans, uh, expelled foreign Jews, quote-unquote, those who couldn't prove their nationality. Then, then we heard that they were taken to somewhere in Poland, now I know all the details, were shot, 
right afterwards, a few weeks later, and he was one of them. Because he couldn't prove his nationality and came back. When he came back, he began talking. Nobody listened to him. And what did he say? Terrible things. Jews, you don't know what's happening there. Jews are being killed. He said, some people have to dig their own grave. And I was there, and everybody died. He gave names. This one died, that one died. And I alone, like the story of Job, and I alone came to tell the tale. Nobody listened to him. They thought he was crazy. The only one who listened was I. Not because I believed him. Because I love stories. And then he remained in town, not the same person anymore. I used to see him before. He remained in town another two or two and a half years. And then I saw him in the ghetto with the last transport. He knew where we were going, but we didn't. And this Moisha fascinates me because you were to- we, were, we were talking about your your religious fervor and your passion for it. And I, I read that you, you really wanted to study Jewish, Jewish mysticism and your father didn't want you to, but you found Moisha who taught you about this. And was it, was it Moisha or your grandfather who told you that the power of a question can almost overpower the answer? That's him. That's that was what Moisha. Moisha said it, of he course. He taught you that. But it, many people said that, but to me at that time, he is the one who said it. But at the same time, really, the real teacher was not he. I had, my, I had Kalman, the Kabbalist. He was my teacher in Siget. But he taught me something more important, the destiny of the Jewish people, the mass graves. You know, coincidentally, we found this boy who was 12 years old when he perished in 1943, and I had never heard of the place. And yet 500,000 Jews had been killed there. And you know where it was? Last night I was reading night. It was the same forest that Moisha had come back from. Really, from Galicia? Yes. Why had I, who have read about the Holocaust, 500,000 people had been killed there, and I, I wasn't aware of that name. Why is that? That's why you asked earlier about writing, you know. And how many transports were, ex- how many villages or cities were eliminated? without a single survivor, which means taking history with them in the grave. That reminds me of the story you told 20 years ago at the 92nd Street Y of Samson, who, who, who lived when, when tell, the stadium collapsed. Came down, to tell the story. Yes. Bear witness. I can't remember. Nobody. So how did the story come to us? Oh, because of divine inspiration. You have been worried, you have written about, you were worried when you first wrote about your experiences that your testimony would not be accepted. Do you still worry about that? Or do you accept that it has been accepted? It has been accepted by most people. But there are what we call Holocaust deniers. And they are the ugliest human beings that exist. I would never engage them in a debate. They try. I would never do that because they are so ugly to deny the Holocaust today while they are still survivors. What should a survivor think? Let's say in Chicago, Illinois, when they had marches, the Holocaust deniers had marches with planes saying there was no Holocaust. Imagine a survivor in Skokie, Illinois, at the window with his children, and they say there was no Auschwitz, and the children 
surely looked at their father. Hey, hey. They say you weren't there. So therefore, at one point, I, I gathered deans of law school say, what can we do about it? How about suing them simply for the pain they are causing to our children? And they said, all the most famous lawyers, don't touch it because you may lose on a technicality. And that would give them a reason to rejoice and say, look, even the courts are with us. But at the same time, you know, I was a few, few years ago in San Francisco at a conference with Marvin Albright and others on a peace conference, peace, conflict resolution and peace. And all of a sudden, as I took the elevator to my 26th floor, I was alone with a young man, and on the sixth floor he stopped, and he tried to kidnap me. I remember the story. Remember the story? Tried to kidnap me. He said, you must come with me, and I'll force you to tell me certain things, to, to admit that the Holocaust never existed. I got panicked. So luckily I began shouting, and nobody listened. But then he saw the elevator, we saw that somewhere the elevator was coming, and he saw that it came for me. So he ran away. After two weeks, he was, uh, of one week, he was caught by the police. He spent two years in, in, in prison. Why should a young man who just finished college destroy his career just for that? But they too, they are dangerous. So you still, even after what you've been through, you still get shocked. I get shocked for, for the extreme when it comes to that. Sure, sure. In terms of your perspective on the world now, I mean, the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum set out with some very ambitious goals 20 years ago. Tell me what the main mission was, have they achieved it, and what's necessary for them to succeed? What is the metric to evaluate their success for the next 20 years? It was one of the projects that really I'm so pleased that I, I was part of, really. Because not only it's a successful story, it's not only that, because of the meaning of success. I never, never realized. It. Can you imagine, I think, close to 20 million visitors to the museum in 20 years. And, what, and tell us the percentage of Jews versus non-Jews. I think more non-Jews than Jews, of course. I've read 90% non-Jews. Yes, but not only that, you have the FBI and the military and the police, everybody goes there now. You cannot now imagine American history without, without that museum. And therefore, I'm so proud of our country. Really. And, I, and I have to tell you, it was, it was President Carter who came to you with the idea of doing something, a monument, and you had a different idea. That's right. He wanted a monument, you know. And I said, Mr. President, at the end I said to Mr. President, I am a Jew, we don't believe in monuments. And what do you believe in? I said, in, in teaching, in learning. And finally he accepted to have actually to, to build a, a museum with, with educational components. And, and it, it became one of the best, best projects in American history. Which, as we discussed in the beginning, is still breaking news on this story. I, I have a question to ask you. It's really for my daughter. And when she was nine, she was in art class. And they spread newspaper over the table, as they do in art classes. And the teacher hadn't noticed a particularly horrific story in the corner of one of those newspapers. But she did. It's about a very violent incident, which shocked her for days. And then she came to me with a question that I'd like you to try to answer for her. She said, Dad, 
if the world were a movie, what would it be rated? Oh, probably art. The history of the 20th century is not nice history, not a good century. Oh, there were good things too, let's, let's be honest about it and frank. There were great things. First of all, in the world of sciences. The medical science has made progress in, in, in 50 years, more than in 5,000 years. We have made progress. Also, um, in writing and in, in the law, the law improved. The law against racism in America, which was after, it took time. Why? The fact is, when I came to America and I visited the South, I was shocked because I saw racism, not only the law, but at work. And then for the first time in my life, I was ashamed of being white. I was never ashamed of being Jewish, not even during the war. But being white? Now it's against the law. The law forbids racism. So there are good things that happen too. But above all, it's not enough. We expected more. I would like, for instance, in the field of morality, to make as much progress as we made in the sciences, as we made in, in, in medicine. But, you know, I'm so encouraged to hear you say, given what you've been through, that the world is only rated R. That encourages me. <laughs> I have to ask well, you, because I'm looking at you, and I didn't know what to expect. You're 84 years old. You hurt my hand when you shook it. You have... I'm sorry. <laughs> That's because I walked on crutches for a whole year. Is that right? Yeah. You have a determination in your eyes. Your face looks great. What is your secret to longevity? Believe me, I don't know. I have no idea. We are all frail, we are all mortal. All of a sudden, I think, you know, two years ago, all of a sudden, I uh, had a heart attack. And I told you, five bypasses and so forth and so forth. I don't know. Believe me, I don't do the right thing. I work too hard. <laughs> Maybe that's part of it, though. It's the working hard. I've been told by your staff that you walk everywhere. They did a study in Hokkaido, Japan, where there are more centenarians than any place on Earth, and they found good diet, so maybe you don't have that, constant motion, and purpose in life. Well, purpose in life, of course, in my case, is important, actually, sure, but I, I want to do something with my, the years that I have, that I had. Uh, otherwise, really, why go on? The, the description of your father and how close he came to surviving all the way. It was what, six weeks before the liberation? Two months. And I thought, and there was nothing you could do, and I know that, but I don't know if you want to describe that experience or if we should just refer people to the book because it's around page 100, it's near the end. But again, to have, to, for anybody to have to go through that is, is beyond my imagination. And I almost felt like I couldn't subject my son to that scene, and yet he should know that this has existed. I wanted to leave when I was in Auschwitz because of my father. I knew that if I die, he would die. But then we went to Buchenwald together. When he died, I didn't leave anymore. That's why the book, which is so small, the last, since January 27 to April 11, maybe three, four pages. Nothing. Because Nothing happened to me. I wasn't alive. But you came back to life. I came back on April 11, and all of a sudden the American army was there in Buchenwald. The first American soldier, 
to this day, you know, I'm so grateful to the American Army. You cannot imagine. And there is a photo. You've seen the photo of you. Which Somebody date? found it. That's how I saw it. It was a few days after April Probably, 11th? Probably, yeah, yeah. When the American Army came. It was an American officer. I have it on my computer. And I, I, I want to I bring it up because I have a question to ask you about that. Because you described how you felt when you looked in the mirror just days before that, maybe, or maybe it was days after that. After that. Yeah. And you looked in the mirror. Uh, here it is. Because I, am, I couldn't recognize where you were. No, and if, if, you can, if you can point it out, yeah. that is you. Yeah. I don't recognize you. And you didn't recognize yourself. Oh, could And you know what? I was out in your receiving room out here, and I saw all your books. And one, on one of the bindings was a picture of Adolf Hitler. And I think, what's a more frightening image to you, that picture or this picture of you? Of course, his, actually. Hitler's, because you were terrified when you saw your face and your body. I haven't seen, we didn't have mirrors before. First time I saw a mirror was afterwards. When the, but well, again, the American army, the American army for me became, uh, I was invited one day to, uh, to West Point to give a lecture. I accepted for one reason, immediately, to say thank you. And I took my wife with me because I knew it was going to be very moving. And I said to them, look, all my life, my adult life, I wanted actually to thank the American army because they gave me a parade. You know, they said they are giving you something that only the president of the United States can get. They gave me such honors. I said, you are thanking me. I am reading history books. The Americans knew about all these camps before. And I was wondering whether the American patterns third army I'm sure they knew that what was awaiting them in Buchenwald. Did the commanders make a decision or an effort to go a little bit faster? They would have saved more people. When I look at that picture, I also think, because you were so hopeless at that point, you at 84 now, if you could say something to that 16-year-old Elie Wiesel, what would it be? Look, I had that feeling and that need to say to that boy, strangely enough, at the most glori- one of the most glorious moments in my life when I got the Nobel Prize. And I remember I was there and I had to speak. And actually I wanted to speak to that boy and say, look, here I am with you. What have I done with your life and mine? My questions remain questions all the time. Elie Wiesel, thank you so much for joining us. I thank you very much. By the way, you can find CNN profiles on our website, cnn.com soundwaves, or download us from iTunes, or go to SoundCloud. And please, if you like what you hear, don't be shy. Share.